to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. And I'm Tay. What's up, horror fans, movie fans everywhere? Hey, everyone. Good to have you back here just a week after Scream. Uh, We're excited to continue our horror month. We're packing it as full as we can. And this is fun, too, because we're actually recording in October now before we were ahead of it in September. But for the next couple of weeks, we'll be recording every week as we release stuff. So we're, uh, we're, 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 I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm deep into the horror watch list so far. I've gotten, gotten a good number of horror movies in already. What about you, Tay? Yeah, I'm a few down so far, but I was kind of start, I started a little early, prematurely in September, but yeah, uh, yeah, I'm super excited. It's kind of got the right vibe now that we're to talk about horror movies in October. Absolutely. It's the right temperature, you know, yep. uh, like we're getting some of the leaves changing and yeah, watching, you know, a horror movie a day, maybe, maybe two on slower days has really helped put me in the mood. And, uh, the one that we're talking about today, uh, really, really does that for me. Cause I think it's a very atmospheric, highly textural movie. Um, and, uh, and it's one of my favorites, which is why we're talking about it. Uh, and it's the 2018 version of Suspiria, directed by Luca Guadagnino. Um, so Tay and I, if, if you're just tuning in now, we, we're doing this month, we're talking about Wes Craven movies, we're doing Scream, and then we're doing A Nightmare on Elm Street next week. Uh, but in the off weeks, Tay and I are each picking a favorite horror movie to talk about. And this was one of like three that were sort of floating top of mind for me. And I actually ended up, because we're doing Tay for you later on in the month, we're doing the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and I think this is kind of a nice counterpoint because it is a modern uh, horror remake, uh, which is really its own sort of beast. Yeah, Texas Chainsaw, the original, I think is one of the few movies in the horror in the horror canon that has been kind of bastardized by its remakes. Mm-hmm. I don't think that any of the remakes have had much to offer at all, and there's been so many for that movie. We can talk about that when we come to that episode, but I th- I do think that remakes come in all shapes and forms. This one being one of the cases where I think it works because there is a recontextualization of the original source material and something very different comes out the other end. Yeah, there's no attempt to... So uh, let's lay some groundwork and then we'll get into our remakes. We can talk about the original things like that. So this movie for the record is about Susie Banyan, a naive Midwesterner who travels to a divided Berlin to join the mysterious Marcos dance company, uh, starring Dakota Johnson and Tilda Swinton. Suspiria was directed by Luca Guadagnino and released November 2nd, 2018. Uh, it's available to stream on Amazon prime. Um, so yeah, the original, uh, is by Dario Argento. Um, it's a, From 1977. It's a, yeah, 1977 as well. Uh, it's a classic. Uh, it's it's got a very stark style. It's part of the uh, the giallo film movement. Tay, you know more about that than me. It, it it might not fit into that genre specifically. I don't really know enough about the specifics involved needed to be classified that way. But I do think it has the look and feel of what I think a giallo movie is supposed to be, um, which is pulpy, uh, like the hyper color. It's very surreal, uh, jump cuts, uh, very disorienting uh, in its yeah, style it's a and lot prose. Of like stark technique, I'd say, right? It's 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 flashy colors, and it's not trying to make it a seamless experience as much. Far like, from again, it. I 
yeah, I don't I don't have a ton of experience with the genre either. And frankly, I'm not a huge fan of the Argento original. Like, I think it's it's kind of a vibes only thing, which I think can be lots of fun. And I have definitely watched the original like with a group of people around Halloween. But I feel like you're tuning in and tuning out when like there's not a ton going on because it's not they're not really interested in like a super reasonable plot or something you can follow very carefully and things like that but nothing against it uh, i just i think this the newer one uh, succeeds in that it's not trying to do the same thing it has a very stark contrast to the color choices the filming style and it leans into a much more complex uh, plot yeah from what i remember about watching the original which i've seen a couple times it it is full of moments of terror uh, mm-hmm. I remember one specific moment from that movie really sticking with me for a long time. Uh, some of the deaths that happen in the original are scarring to the point mm-hmm. where they'll never leave my brain. Uh, and that's worthwhile in its own because even some good hor- some movies I would consider good horror movies don't do that to me. Yep. Uh, that being said, I don't really care for the original Suspiria in the sense that I don't put it on as like a joy watch. I put it on because mm-hmm. there are moments that I want to see. And this w- this is refreshing in, uh, because it doesn't feel like that. This feels more complete as a movie. And I know that you're a huge fan. I do have concerns about what the goal of characters are at certain points in the movie because I feel mm-hmm. like it's really unclear what motivations are and there's a lack of cause and effect, which does kind of actually correspond with the original a little bit. But uh, for the most part, this is a much more cohesive movie and i do understand why the movie progresses in this way unlike the original which is a little less sensible sensible in that regard yeah yeah and and you know we'll we'll dive into some of that stuff we'll see if i if i've got any answers for you on some of those fronts maybe i do maybe i don't i don't pretend to be an expert i have seen this movie many times and i love it so whatever expertise that lends me (laughs) uh, we'll we'll uh we'll see uh, but before well, we go there, like I just yeah, I think this is one version of the remake process, and it's especially for horrors. I think you know you're sort of just drawing on the original premise and taking it in a different direction, like a witch coven in a dance company in Germany, and let's take it and let's see what we can do with that in a different direction. But there's so many different types of horror remakes out there. We've we've even covered a bunch of them already. Like we did The Fly, which was a remake from a black and white classic. The Thing as well, a remake from like a 50s black and white classic. Um, and I don't even know how I'd classify those as they were like like new, not even new Hollywood remakes, well, but like I consider those post-code remakes. Yeah, exactly. It's They were made in like the original, like The Thing from Another World and the original mm-hmm. version of The Fly were both mid-50s movies, and the the industry of film changed so much from the 50s to the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. So I, con- I consider those ones more updates because they don't really share that much in common with their originals other than like the very core idea in place. But yeah. visually and uh, thematically and especially in terms of the effects, they don't even compare on the same level. So They're entirely different movies. Yeah, they are. Yeah. I, I think what differentiates them from a lot of the remakes that we're encountering now and we have been for the last 10 to 15 years is they do not rely... I don't think they relied on nostalgia. I don't think John Carpenter 
in making the thing was like, I'm going to get all the fans of the thing from outer space. That's right. Right. Now it's it's very much part of the marketing now is to capitalize on nostalgia and mm -hmm. reliving moments or ideas of the originals with a new audience. I, I think at best you get like a recontextualization of like, the environment or the setting so like you had a recent uh remake of child's play or the latest scream which is scream i want to say six or seven it came out last year and both of those incorporated like modern technology into their stuff so child's play the remake was all kind of about like internet of things like networked smart devices and like ai I don't really remember much else because it wasn't good, but I do remember that that was sort of like, that was their spin on it was like Chucky could control IOT devices in the house to like turn up the thermostat and like light Aubrey Plaza on fire with a hot pipe or something. Yeah, because I think think Chucky (laughs) was an AI, like he had Bluetooth or something. He's like a smart toy or something. He's supposed to like learn about the kid and like you know, create a unique experience. And then like also with Scream, like its whole thing sort of mirroring the scene that we talked about was that like the killer had access to like the smart home locks and stuff. So the person couldn't lock their own house, which just feels like the most surface level take you could, if you're like, we're going to make these things in 2022 and I'm not going to take any deeper than that. Right. So I think that that's, that's a version where you, you just, you're like, well, let's, use the technology from this time and how how to killer operate in a in a post smartphone world or a post smart home world yeah i don't think that that is a that way of doing a remake doesn't particularly cater to me and my taste mm-hmm. i do like the idea of updating a horror movie but i think it's got to be more than on a plot level i think it's got to have yeah. themes and ideologies that have shifted with the times mm-hmm. uh my my big examples that i brought in were uh the Hills Have Eyes, which I think, uh, because we are talking about Wes Craven a lot this month, really yeah. worth watching the original and comparing it to the newer one if you've only seen one or the other. Mm-hmm. I think both cashed in on peak times of their specific niche horror genres, which is Atomic Age Fear uh, from like the 70s, which was yeah. very much epitomized by the West, original Wes Craven, Hills Have Eyes. And the new mm-hmm. one was a core piece of the torture porn genre of the early 2000s, which was the most prominent, most identifiable genre maybe out there at the time. And it was one of the headliners of the genre. So yeah, like if we, if we talked about like in our scream episode, that scream sort of kicked off a new era of horror, where it was a little bit more meta and aware, probably the next era is gore porn, right? Yeah. Saw hostile and Hills have eyes, probably the top three. Yeah, I'd say those yeah. like definitely saw in Hostile, and then Hills yeah. of Eyes would have been on that same track, but it wasn't purely focused on torture. Mm-hmm. This is true. Nor was the original um, Saw for the record, which I'd like to always clarify. The original Saw is phenomenal. Yeah, by the way. that's that's such a good movie. Um, and then I mean, I guess the other the other subgenre of these remakes that I take into account are like the political recontextualizing so you had that candy man was that just last year it was right before COVID, i think okay yeah man i've, I've lost total track of time recently yeah. it's that these these pandemic years really throw me off but we definitely you and i and uh uh past and future guest rob i think all saw that candy man together in theaters and we we're all like eh. yeah it it felt messy it felt 
again not something that we can speak on to on with too much authority but it felt like a post get out sort of like we have things to say about the the black experience in america and none of it's terribly well parsed and there's a lot of ideas i think there's a lot of it was a little overstuffed thematically there yeah. was some very cool shots in it there's some great mirror work just like there are in there is in suspiria but i don't i think i'm looking forward to watching that again at some point just sort of seeing like how is it settled you know things like that because i love the original Candyman. that was one of the ones i considered doing for this bonus episode um it's really good. I, I also really enjoyed the original and didn't think that the sequel had as much to say as it... Th- or, sorry, the remake had as much mm-hmm. to say as it thought it did. Yeah. But yeah, no, that that's sort of how I feel about how you have your remakes breaking down. The, the last sort of subset of which, or not subset, but maybe a notable sort of transition point we can use is uh, David Gordon Green's Halloween trilogy, which yes, I don't know about you, just but just like, ended, right? It's just ending now. I don't know. By the time this is out, is it in theaters? I don't. I don't know. I got to think. T- Halloween I be honest, ends. Is out I'm not. Right now. I, I'm not going to go see it in theaters. I just, zero chance. Yeah. I. 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 I rarely do this. I turned off Halloween Kills halfway through. I really couldn't take that movie. It was inane, to be perfectly <laughs> To be brutally honest. Um, so it's David Gordon Green, who is not a bad filmmaker. I really like Pineapple Express. Solid comedy filmmaker. He directed a bunch of episodes of Righteous Gemstones and Vice Principals. I don't think he's bad at any of that stuff. But at some point, I think him and Danny McBride sort of traded in on their capital from all that stuff to go after these horror movies that they clearly love. And I cannot stand the the modern Halloween trilogy at all. And the interesting thing is that David Gordon Green was signed on for the Suspiria remake before Guadagnino. That's right. That's the connection here. He had had the option, but Guadagnino, I guess, was in touch with Dario Argento. Well, he bought bought it from Argento. Yeah. And then because Gordon Green was sort of first in line, I guess Guadagnino was like, okay, well, by all means, do a treatment. Let's see where that goes. And I guess there were funding issues, is, yeah, is what so, is what they say. Gordon Green left. There were funding issues. He had had his script. He described as highly operatic. It sounded like it was going to be similar to Argento's, like maybe a sort of a middle ground. It'd be stark and bold and big, but again, some form of update. I don't know. It, to me, with the comment about going, it was like seemingly going to go over budget. That just, I don't know. That struck me as a case of. Gordon Green's version being too much or too ambitious, because mm-hmm. uh, if that if it was an over budget project and this or the version that actually came out was fine by the studios, yeah, uh, I I think it must have been it must have come down to the vision of the movie and what Gordon Green was yeah, prepared to bring to the read, table. Read between the lines. Something in the project wasn't working, and I would I would I would gamble that. Fortunately, we we got what we got instead, yes, which uh, I, was a twenty so million too. dollar budget production by Guadagnino with a seven point seven million dollar return, which I'm going to blame entirely on the fact that Amazon Prime made it and wanted it to be you know one of the many tent poles of their service that gives it legitimacy and things like that. It was for a while. Terribly, I remember. I don't think they were terribly concerned in making money on it either. My understanding of the Amazon Prime model is that. Prime continues to lose money 
and they just support it with the rest of the massive business, right? Like Bezos takes a loss on Prime because it allows him to meet movie stars and stuff like that. And he just reaps the profits of like, you know, the Amazon store and Azure and things, or not Azure, um, Amazon Web Services. That, that's what I've heard. Uh, I'll see if I can find a link to back that up. <laughs> but um, Yeah, it sounds uh, spiteful, I, Tim. Well, I don't, I don't think it's unfair to say that most streaming services operate at a loss. Their entire model is get more subscribers, get more venture capital, and then eventually you hit a peak point like Netflix did three or four months ago where they started losing money and their stock prices tanked because they don't have any original stuff that people like anymore and they're losing subscribers. Well, that's the cost of buying all your stuff instead of making it off, out of the gate, right? Or yep. not retaining your what you had. Mm-hmm. And anyway. I, I remember Amazon Prime, like kind of when you click on something on Amazon, like Suspiria comes up and mm-hmm. it's kind of like the image went, it's like the tab for Prime. It was yeah. for a while at least. So definitely they wanted to use it. It's a really interesting like aesthetic the you know, the cover mm-hmm. that they gave Suspiria. So I want to think, or maybe it's specifically just targeting me because I'm into horror movies. And I have bought horror movies through Amazon, so maybe that's just the image that I get when I see well, I the think, Prime I stuff. I think also, at the time, they were definitely leaning into the fact that they had it, you know, it was done by the maker of Call Me By Your Name, which had Oscar buzz. It was it was a, a critical darling from a, a couple years prior. So I think Amazon was definitely, you know, trying to boost their status by saying, listen, we've got this this great Italian filmmaker, he's remaking an Italian classic, uh, it's got Oscar winners. Uh, it's got, you know, sort of young, not up and coming, but like definitely more note, like Dakota Johnson sort They're, of in the I would gray. say up and coming is still. Yeah. In the Fifty Shades of Grey sort of period and things like that. Um, and I, I don't know about you, but I got lucky. I was in Vancouver visiting family when this was in its extremely limited theatrical release. So I got to I got to walk down to this theater in Vancouver I couldn't I couldn't find now if you asked me and I got to see this in a theater that it is was very fantastic cool. the crowd the crowd was was like lively it had you know people were sort of like reacting to stuff but um luckily a a um a very well-behaved crowd which isn't always the case for horror movies um it's always a little tough to get people on the right level when they're not just laughing at stuff but I was actually no, fortunate I mean, enough to see it in theaters here as well uh oh just yeah at, just at the right pack on. there yeah Oh, so that's our yeah. I think well, was that the year after? Because I definitely saw it at it, we have it our film. Definitely house here. wasn't uh, wasn't. You definitely saw it first, but I don't oh, think it was yeah. out of the street like out of its run, like original mm-hmm. running. Because I, I I either was at that one with you or one in that run of the film house. Because my my housemate went with us, and I remember she was very disturbed by this movie. Um, and uh, and rightfully so. Let's. Uh, I think we can we can dig into it. I just wanted to open with. There's a great article about Hold the on. themes on. We screen. should do the tagline. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> before we do the <laughs> before <quote. laughs> before I, I I do this sort of like article tagline. Let's start with. I mean, I looked at the taglines on IMDb and none of them felt right. And this one felt like it was. I think it was the top of the list. So, uh, tremble, tremble, three exclamation points. The witches are back. Dot dot dot. Not not good. Let's spend 10 minutes dissecting this. <laughs> There's nothing there. I didn't like any of the any of the taglines and like you know, you can align that with the how this movie was promoted, which was it's a it's a tentpole for a streaming platform 
who who cares about the posters or the or the taglines or, or or things like that all they need is a trailer and a limited release to make it slightly legitimate and then hopefully it'll bring in subscribers so once again i blame and that Amazon. creepy hostage font yeah. <laughs> anyway to to sort of set the scene going into this uh because this could be i mean it's already we're fairly long before we're getting into the movie this could be a very long episode but it's not going to be because again we're we're single serving but uh, i like how this quote uh from this article uh, by Hayes on Screen Crush, uh, sort of contextualizes it. It says, It is impossible to discuss the rapturous, experiential masterpiece that is Guadagnino Suspiria without dedicating this much space to its thematic density. It's not a film one considers, but excavates, continually finding additional symbols and meaning within the deceptively simple setting. Suspiria is a theater of pain and ugliness in which a woman such as Susie can and does come into her power. It is horrible. It is breathtaking. It is, to paraphrase Susie, she. Um, now I don't agree across the, across the board with that. I'm not sure whether I call this a masterpiece, but I do think it is dense and I think it sticks with you. And the, the, the latter of which is one of my hallmarks of movies that I think are good. If they can just stay on your mind, that's, that's a real achievement. And this one sticks with me and it's something I like to return to and something I find a little bit more in every time I go back to it. That part I do agree with you with, but to your original point there, I can't make that same claim because I don't think I like the original Suspiria, and yet that movie sticks with me. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So I think that in my, for me at least in my taste, there's two different ways of looking at a movie. It, it can be like it can really stick out to me, and I can love the movie, and they can be separate. Uh, mm-hmm. First one, first other one that comes to mind is Death Proof by Tarantino. Yeah, still haven't figured out how I feel about that movie. And Suspiria, Death Proof, and a handful of others are in this weird, yeah. weird uh, category. Like you're you're willing to watch them again, but you're not sold. And they have imagery that really sticks in my brain. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. It's, but I still can't say if I think that they're great films or not. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I know we're we've done a lot of diverting today, but just touching on some of these points. I I think that it's a little pretentious to say that this is a film that excavates and uh, finding additional symbols and meaning through its deceptively simple setting because I don't think very much of that's actually true. I think you can find additional symbols, <laughs> but I think this, this is far from a simple setting, and I, I don't think anything is deceptively simple. <laughs> you would? No, I wouldn't say it's deceptively simple. Okay, I yeah. do think it's worthy worthy of excavation. But, okay, fair enough. Yeah. But saying that this is a simple setting is, is, I think, doing a disservice to this movie because they do so much to make this a co- like a complex setting. And mm-hmm. that's one of the strengths of this movie, in my opinion, is the way that they do the set design and production design is it like creates an immediate tone of, uh, I don't know... Uh, of emptiness in the mm-hmm. in the dance hall but also it's full of life and f- there are like familial vibes and i think it's incredibly complex in terms of how they then present the setting through its camera work and editing which is both dynamic and seemingly raw if yeah. those are the right words because i think some some camera movements almost seem like accidents and then some seem perfectly choreographed uh, and I think the imbalance of all the 
of all these things, of all like the visual elements, make this a very disorienting, complex setting. Yeah, no, I think like one of the things that I love about this movie and it doesn't have any inherent value. I think it's entirely a matter of taste is I just love how it looks and feels like a seventies movie. There's something about that era of movies that, you know, the film grain, the way they're lit and the way they're shot with your snap zooms and your slow zooms and your kind of sloppy camera movements Mm -hmm. that I don't know if it's stuff that I watched when I was a kid, because there were definitely some movies like my parents uh, would have us watch older movies and there's something just sort of in the core of my lizard brain that like really reacts to stuff like this and I think you've got this drab color palette like it's brown and gray it's always raining except when it's snowing in this movie you can hear the rain a lot I think it's a very uh, subdued visual style a lot of the time like Especially in terms of how it's lit and colored mm-hmm. but a very live uh, sound mix I yes. think the way yeah, yeah, yeah. you hear people moving through this place, it's alive at, on the on the sonic side and and half asleep on the visual side. Um, and I think a lot of that, you know, you can the cinematographer by, by uh, Seombu Mukdipram, who uh, who also did Call Me by Your Name. The guy loves to shoot on film. He tries to shoot with with very few lenses. He actually did. I, was, I there's a great video I'll link from a great account um, on YouTube, In Depth Cine. Um, cinema who uh, this guy sort of will break down cinematographers through their style with examples and talk about the equipment that they use what kind of lighting that they prefer things a lot of very detailed stuff that we don't need to get into but he did mention that call me by your name was shot on 35 millimeter film with one prime 35 millimeter lens the entire thing right stuff like that where very very cool stuff from this guy Uh, he's a Thai cinematographer and he and sort of his quotes are saying like he lets the environment and the characters sort of dictate his choices. He's never building a shot list uh, ahead of time. He tries to keep That's it simple evident. and shoot off a tripod. Um, but of course, he's got some crane movements, things like that in this dance hall that we're going to talk about in our scene. So I really love the I feel like you can feel the setting a lot. And the sound mix is definitely part of that, which is which is outside the cinemato- cinematographer. But there's a real texture to this movie. Yes, uh, it it leaves a, it certainly leaves an impression on you to the point where it's almost the aura of the space is almost distracting from the characters and their interactions to me. I'm almost mm-hmm. more focused on the the music and the sound versus like the characters talking to one another a lot of the time. I and mm-hmm. I think that it works for a movie that's intentionally trying to make you feel like you're in a dream state or like lucid dreaming almost. Mm-hmm. It, it feels like you're on rails and you don't have any choice of where you're going. You're just kind of, yeah. you're being slowly moved into the next tr- part of the dream. Yeah, I do think, and we'll talk about this in our in our scene as well, I think this movie makes you a witness, right? And there's, I think you're right, there's a bit of a subtle art to doing that. Where, yeah, sometimes, like, the audio is mixed almost at the same... Like, the dialogue is mixed almost at the same level as the rain, right? Yeah, exa- and it, exactly. And it's suggesting that, like, uh, the, the lines don't matter quite as much. You're stuck in this room. That's what that's what matters. And you're, you do get a sense of what the characters are feeling. And that, to me, is enough. Uh, whether it's, you know, their discomfort and horror or if it's, like the familial love that they're kind of feeling towards each other as sisters and mothers to the children. Mm -hmm. 
uh, I just don't think that the dialogue is as important as most films. Yeah, and I, again, I don't agree with the statement, but I do think there, there, there are people who will say, like, yeah, this is deceptively simple because I think the movie is unconcerned with making it clear what's happening beneath the surface, right? So you, they, it almost does have you watch it like, well, this is just what's happening. It's like, oh, you didn't hear that line? It's probably fine, right? I guess to and me that are, makes it more complex than more simple. Yeah, but I, I think I can see what people are getting at, even though, again, I would never land at, oh, yeah, this is a simple plot. And it's like, well, is it? <laughs> as, as we'll get into. No, but I mean, and it's another, intentionally another, confusing and yeah. uh, obfuscating. Yeah. And oh, another aspect of that complexity is that it was chosen to be set in the year that the original was released. So 1997, 1997, 1977 in Berlin, which is known as the German autumn. So the idea then, so like you've got a divided Berlin. So East Berlin under the influence and control of the Soviet Union. Well, at the same time, you have... Um, you have these groups, uh, the Red Army Faction, also known as the, Bader, the Bader-Meinhof Group or the Bader-Meinhof Gang, who essentially are rising up against what they think are still like sort of uh, fascist influences post-World War II that still have a control over Western Germany, right? So they were classified, rightfully so, as a terrorist group. They bombed places. They kidnapped industrialists who had sort of hidden from their war crimes from World War II and, and their how they were implicit with the Nazi Party's actions. And they murdered these people. And they, you know, they, they took control of uh, Lufthansa Flight 181, which had hundreds of people on it and held them hostage. Flew them all around over the place till they landed in, um, in, a, in an allied country to their concerns where they were stormed by a, uh, by a special, uh, special forces division from Germany. Um, and a, a little a little tidbit all, all this stuff was real and they set the movie uh, sort of around these things the special forces team that took back that plane was trained based on the events of Munich another movie I know I know we're both big fans of Tay so that's a little yeah, connection there that's interesting okay but so this is all a part of um, so there's this great German word it means struggle to overcome the past or working through the past the idea of Germany's younger generation forcing the older ones to come to terms with their guilt from World War II. Um, and this was a common focus and fixation of German youth film for a long time mm-hmm. as well, uh, yeah. starting in the 1950s, actually. A lot of interpretations and examples of German youth in film were seen as being riddled with this guilt from older generations because of their involvement in the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. So I do, I want to, I want to try at this phenomenal German word, as you may be aware, German words, they'll just sort of like add things together till they make one big word that describes a concept. And Tay, I've also provided in our folder, I've got, I've got a pronunciation guide that you can throw in so we can compare one to the other. The the term meaning struggle to overcome the past is Vergangenheitsbewältigung. Vergangenheitsbewältigung. Which I think is a great word. Uh, if you want to see how it's spelled, check the show notes, and uh, we'll see how I how I fared against the pronunciation example. Not bad, Tim. Yeah, I, th- I think it's okay. I have to do some German for choir sometimes, so I'm not I'm not brand new at it, but I'm I'm, I'm in no way fluent. Um, I'd love to hear you sing that but, word. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe when we have a Patreon, we can do a bonus episode with some German choral works. But in general, like I, I think it's a it's a nice setting for the background because it's mirrored by the internal division of the dance company, 
which is essentially this arc of the people in in charge of the dance company, um, namely Mother Marcos, who you don't meet till the end. Uh, she's a very toady looking woman in black glasses. Uh, phenomenal prosthetics work. Yeah, um, it's gross. She's got little hands coming out of her arms. Um, she's kind of incessantly lactating. It's just it's 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 it, it'll have an effect on you. Um, uh, the prosthetics by Marc Coulier, by the way, I think he did a great job in this. We'll talk a little bit about his prosthetics otherwise. Um, but you have sort of this ongoing arc of Mother Marcos, who is in a position of power, and she is more using the the girls in the dance company for her own gains than she is empowering them. And that's sort of, I think that's the core theme of the movie is, what do you do with power? What do the people in power do? Are they Are they, are they lifting people up, or are they trying to hold on to that power and taking advantage of them. And you've got the obvious parallel in the German autumn, along with mother Marcos as absolute evil mother, uh, um, Miss Blanc played by Tilda Swinton as well. Both of them are, um, as sort of a conflicted, like she's a little bit more in touch with is what they're doing. Correct. And, and should they be doing this in another direction? And then you have, obviously spoilers for this movie you have Susie Banyan ascend uh and and become mother superiorum and basically purge the corrupted from this dance company the corrupted from this modern feminist movement from this sisterhood and begin to use her power to to lift people up or provide you know mercy killings to to the used uh people like Patricia and Olga things like that yeah and so I guess I kind of interpreted it that way. The connection between the secondary storyline with Dr. Klemperer and the Dance Academy, mm-hmm. I think the only real connection I could derive was that it was tied to the misuse of power of authority mm-hmm. or of authority. So I still think it's loose. I think it's flimsy. Yeah. And I don't think it's a direct comparable in the sense like I don't think that the shadow of the uh, German autumn is necessarily mm. cast over the dance Academy. Like they, like it's supposed to be, I, I, I oh, want to feel that connection, but I don't feel like it impacts the people inside the dance Academy. Like it, like as much as it should, it may be at the beginning, but then it stops. I, I do think, I don't think you're hundred percent wrong. I think it's somewhere between surface level and a very measured and well thought out metaphor or foil. Yes. Right. In terms yeah, yeah. of literary device. I don't think, I don't think it's perfectly aligned. I do. I, I also don't think it's even remotely apparent. All that stuff that I just talked through that required research, right? Like, I don't know. I don't know what German citizen who's like 60 or 70s now is going to watch this. And they're like, Oh, I get it. Right. That makes like, this required excavation and this is something i like in a movie that there is more to dig into but you know take it to its furthest example uh christopher nolan's tenant you cannot understand that movie right i i would like i i think it takes multiple viewings and i think that works against it and i totally recognize that like this movie and its its background metaphors and the german autumn is not is not well explained or well versed and at, at best, what they get at is that Patricia, uh, Chloe Grace Moretz's character, um, is involved with the Bader-Meinhof gang. Yes. And they sort of use that as a plausible reason why she may have disappeared. And also Klemperer, 
his sort of like the perspective of Klemperer is is as a a man uh, as a witness who has some form of power in that he could have saved his wife if he had listened to her. He could have maybe saved Patricia if he hadn't kept saying like these are paranoid delusions, etc. Like I think that's what they're trying to reckon with is men who don't believe women, right? And that's why they make him the witness. And uh, and the, I I get that that's what they were trying to do. It just felt like two disjointed things that come together at one point of revelation that not that the two things were interconnected the whole time. Hmm. You know, like it I mean, felt the, the like Klemper, the Klemper thing felt, felt aligned to me. That okay. was one thing that I, it didn't require a lot of like analysis or, or reflection, like all the, the historical setting and things like that. Because I mean, I'll be honest, like at the beginning with like the first time or two, I saw this movie, I definitely was like, Oh yeah, like East West Berlin, like you know Marcos versus Blanc, and that's not really what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's also a very Western, you know, and and uh, uh, belies my age and how little I know about sort of like Cold War divided Berlin. That I was like, yeah, I get it. Good right? versus evil. Not, no, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Um, it's more complex than that, and has way more to do with like Germany reckoning with its past and its. And the people who who saw things happening and didn't do things about it, um, but no, I, I I found the Klemper storyline and and man as witness to to these things. Uh, it worked for me. Okay, I felt but, it was uh, pretty detached, especially when yeah. it got in. It delved into the personal life of Klemper, not mm. just his connection to the girls at the dance school. I was right. like, you know, for a movie that's two and a half hours long. I always will wonder what this movie's like without that character, because mm-hmm. to me that makes this a, a 100 minute movie, and yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a lot more concise and focused on the dance academy, which is a much more interesting storyline to me than Clamperer. Uh, it might not involve like the idea of the male witness, which I didn't really consider fully to be honest. So I do like that you mentioned that, but. I always will wonder what this movie would be like without Klemperer because I don't think it's necessary and it's the lesser it's the less interesting part of the movie to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I will there's something I want to touch on with Klemperer in a second, but just sort of to to go back to that theme, there's another writer Goldberg on Collider and I think he puts some of this well, uh saying that Guadagnino is repeatedly hitting on a world where power has been abused and those who feel no guilt or shame are running rampant. We see it in Klemperer's history as a Holocaust survivor. We see it in the current events that pop up in the news during the movie. And we see it in the coven where older women who are supposed to be teaching and helping the students are instead preying on them. The movie isn't saying that powerful women are bad. It's saying that anyone who abuses their power to their own ends rather than serving others is prevent er, perverting that power. Um, Again, yep. I would I would argue that when they say, "Oh, we see it in current events that pop up in the news during the movie," that stuff is not well represented. Well, or, it's just like the context isn't. It's just there. Isn't right? elaborated upon. Yeah. So we not having mm-hmm. the context can't be like, "Oh, I understand this direct connection" without doing research. Yeah, and to me, honestly, that stuff's fine. It was just a matter of, okay, do we need this whole secondary plot? Uh, and that's not to say I don't like elements of it. I think it's an incredibly emotional journey for the Klemperer character. I love mm-hmm. when like, he envisions his wife coming back and they have that walk and then she lures him back to the dance academy. I think that's brilliant and it's one of my favorite parts of the whole movie. Mm-hmm. But 
I, I, like I said, I will always wonder what this movie's like without that side character and all the external factors at play rather than just what this movie's like with American Girl coming to German Dance Academy mm-hmm. and kind of resolving the issues of a witch coven that's misusing its power. I think that but to Tay, me is better. <laughs> Tay, without Dr. Klemperer, we never would have been introduced to the acting genius Lutz Ebersdorf. Yes, of course. And it's, you know, it's really funny because when I was, when we were, when I was watching it this week, I, I was thinking about our conversation during the Scream podcast. We were talking yeah. about kind of stunt casting and the use of Drew Barrymore as kind of the head of your advertising for that movie. Likewise, in this movie, they covered up the fact that Tilda Swinton was playing uh, Clamperer uh, yeah. by using, the, by using the name Sorry, Lutz, er- Lutz Ebersdorf. Ebersdorf. Yeah, yeah, which is who they they said very was funny. like a first time actor. He's a psychoanalyst in real life. He's just we cast him just for this movie. Uh, he doesn't like doing publicity, right? So like at like one of the one of the um, one of the premieres, like South Tilda like read, yeah, Tilda read a letter from him and things like that. And then it was a month or two after the movie, they're like, yeah, of course it was Tilda. Everyone, calm down. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think solid prosthetic work. Um, yeah, for, everyone. For sure. Everyone who I've watched it with, save one person, said they couldn't tell until the movie was over. Right? Like, I think it works very well. I had one person who said, like, no, that was obviously Tilda, and I don't really, I don't really know how they how they pulled that off. But I don't think know, it was obvious it, at all. I I might have yeah. figured it out the first viewing, but I mm-hmm. didn't know the context going in before the movie, like that this was some random actor or anything. Yeah. Uh, I do think that it when. Susie goes to visit him at the end of the film. It's mm-hmm. a little more obvious there's something going on with makeup when uh, they're crying. The, yeah, because it, yeah, it requires the most emotion yes. to get through those prosthetics. That's where I think most of the time he's kind of... Tilda can lean into the idea that this guy's so old, he doesn't have to be super emotive. And that worked with a lot all, of the, it's all the vocal and stuff, voice. too. Yeah. Uh, because she but was I, able to kind of still like, guy, uh, disguise her yeah. voice really effectively, mm-hmm. making yeah. it sound like an older man. Mm-hmm. I still I love I mean I, I really like the epilogue and I, I find the epilogue one of the more interesting parts because I'm still up in the air as to why Susie um, uses her power to remove his his pain right and I don't know if you can just say on the theme like she is rising above all of this right she is she is as mother superiorum she is doing not just like she's not taking revenge she's rising above even that circle of vengeance back and forth and saying i can grant a gift right i can tell you how your wife died and then i can take away the pain that comes along with that knowledge um well to me and and it's crossing gender lines there too it's not just like she grants the peaceful deaths to patricia and olga and she purges the corrupted and it, it it implies that she's going to use her power to help everyone in the dance company and empower them as well but then she goes a step further and, and goes and helps klemperer to me, it's just an extension of her removing, or like it's just like course correction, I guess. It's removing that corrupted power that once was there, um, and mm. seeing his role as the witness to the to the sacrifice, or whatever. What are we calling this end bit? The ritual. The ritual. I don't know. The the ascension. Sure, let's go with the ascension. And I just think that she is absolving him because of the role that he was kind of forced to play here. And 
basically like uh, it was the work of Marcos and it has to be corrected. Yeah, it's a it's a thread of Marcos that needed to be like severed, eliminated. And yeah. instead of killing him, which would have been probably cruel at this point, they they just erase his memory. He killed his memory of of his wife. Yeah. Which was sort of merciful. Yeah, no, and I mean, again, I love that, like, the ending, I remember it because of Tilda's performance. I think when he, when Klemperer breaks down, it's very powerful. And then I think about it because I'm not 100% sure why Susie made that choice and there are options for it. Um, yeah, to me, it's like just cleaning up the mess yeah. as uh, as Mother Suspirium. But to sort of wrap that up, uh, Tilda Swinton, a uh, uh, great actor, Tay, what do you think? I think she's... <laughs> It, top two for me right now working that, yeah, that one, is alive. one of the very best top yeah. two alive actors right now truly like a phenomenal talent um and i do just want to mention so i watched that when i rewatched this for this for this episode and took notes i watched it with my partner who is very uh enamored with tilda swinton loves her and everything that she's seen um and made the note something i had no idea about so i guess tilda based her character on on a choreographer named pina bosch that makes um, a lot of sense. Who yeah. did all modern dance. And if you look up a photo, you're like, oh, 100%. There's another one, Martha Graham, who also influenced. But, like, the long hair, the flowy gowns, the way she moved, and, and her choreography style. Like, it was all right there. So that was that was some nice context. Yeah. Um, Lucky Luca getting to work with her in pretty much anything that he wants her in. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just, just pulled her up from Bigger Splash again to come back and play three characters in this. Was, it, was Dakota Johnson also in that? I believe she was. I still haven't seen it. Me neither. I, I really, neither. I really need to get around to that. I'm surprised again, you I came to this movie. I came to this movie being a huge fan of Call Me by Your Name. So, I need, I need to watch a bigger splash. Uh, but uh, Tay, we're really, we're really pushing. We're really excavating deep into this movie. So let's, I'd say, get into our scene summary, which I'm happy to, I, I'm happy to run through this time as, as uh, I, I pick the movie. We're running from 29:35 to 42:45. Another long one, right around the same length as scene, but. Or a scene as scream but uh but uh there, there's there's some stuff to talk about in here this is where Susie joins her first rehearsal with the company which is interrupted when another dancer olga quits calling the instructors witches Susie boldly steps in as the lead of the dance while olga attempts to escape the academy on her way out she is trapped by a curse and painfully contorted by Susie's dance it stars uh elena fokina as olga and otherwise uh dakota johnson and uh and tilda swinton um in this scene and this scene sort of it has two parts it has sort of like Susie being introduced to the academy and and then olga's olga's outburst is sort of one part and then just a scene where olga is um uh, like uh, trying tortured. to leave the building and then yeah gets kind of sucked which is very the... like that that's sort of one of the scenes that i think more directly harkens back to the original it's like being lost in this place and 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 under under someone else's control and 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 sort of having no having no control or agency and, and, and just sort of being terrified. Yeah. There, there is actually quite a bit to break down between these two. I think it's like a scene that's kind of split in half, but as far as like the aesthetic approach of doing all this, like the scene, I think it's quite brilliant. I love the, the way I love the way that the rehearsal room looks. And mm. I think that for the most part, I found all the dancing and the dancers very credible and believable uh, from everything that they're doing with the stretching to the way that they spoke to one another, to the camaraderie, to the actual dancing itself. I, all that 
works really really well it's one of the reasons why i wanted to see even more of the dance academy in the movie than diverting to other aspect other avenues but i for the most part i think the scene works very well my big question to you tim is what is actually happening (laughs) just no no follow-up just what's happening yeah i think i like like what's the function what's the point because I, I can take that in two directions. Is it a matter of the witches torturing Olga? Or is it a matter of them transferring Olga's dance ability and power to Susie? Uh, if one of those two, I'd say definitely more the former. Because I think it's pretty pretty well established that Susie is a surprisingly great dancer. Especially for coming all the way from Ohio. You have an earlier scene where she has her audition. And her audition is so wonderful that the people in the room are sort of amazed by it, but also the energy of it draws Tilda Swinton's uh, Madame Blanc downstairs into the audition space um, with a great musical cue in that, with the most Goblin-esque part of it where Susie's spinning and then and then Blanc shows up. Goblin being uh, the band that did the original score. There's a for, couple uh, Goblin for, moments. For Argentos. There are, but that one that one really feels like the most to me. Tom York did the music for this, by the way. I don't think we're going to talk too much about it, but it's exceptional. I love it. Yeah. Um, Okay, but later in the movie, when they get the they get the other dancer who can jump a lot better, that's mm -hmm. not them transferring the power of that dancer into Susie, because that's what it feels like. That's what it looks like. That that one does. I I would definitely agree that that one feels more like they are they are moving something from one one person to another. I think the in-movie function of this scene is to sort of establish, again, like how preternaturally, preternaturally great Susie is at what she's doing. And the fact that she, she's like, no, I'll do the lead. I've watched it at the library a hundred times. And they're like, this is extremely difficult what we do. And she's like, no, 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 I can do it. And she does it. And then she gets, you know, imbued some magic in her hands and her feet. And it's it it's merely paralleled that they're like, well, we can't let Olga leave because she's gonna she's gonna blow the whistle on us. Um, so let's use Susie to to perform a spell and and fold up Olga and and basically you know drag her into the dungeon where she can be sapped by Mother Marcos, just like you eventually realize Patricia is as well. They're just sort of hanging out down there, undying. Mm-hmm. Um. Not something that's ever made 100% clear, but I think that's the in-movie function of it, is to establish... But so Susie is not doing this, it's the witches. I don't think so. Well, no. Susie is no, I think she's, witch, being, but... she's being used, right? Um, and then I think the, the, the audience function of this, like the, the outside of the movie, um, is, and you put in the notes here, is that it's important to um, realize the threat at play. Right, because as as you say in one of the notes, if you didn't have this thing happening to Olga, a lot of this would still feel like oh, dreamlike, and maybe it's real and maybe it's not. Yeah. This is this is abject proof for the viewer of witchcraft and how dangerous and how brutal it is. And I think it also it there's no one else in that room uh, where Olga is being tortured, uh, but it's all mirrors, which you know, phenomenal camera work. The, the work that would go into blocking out your camera. Um, but also, I think very intentionally, it's making us the witness. We're the only people who are a party to Olga's pain. 
uh, we kind of make it real in that way. And I mean, you get way more lofty in terms of like what that means for, again, Klemperer being witness or us being witness, things like that. It feels like it's someone else's perspective in the room. It feels like the witches are watching though. And I'm not saying this to contest mm-hmm. your point. I'm saying it's like almost our perspective aligns with the witches who are then torturing her. If that's what's actually happening mm-hmm. in the scene. And then, yeah. and then, you know, it's not part of our scene, but they do all like come in like the, those who are not witnessing yeah, Susie's they, performance they all after. come into that room and pick her up with the, Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'd the say hooks. functionally, I functionally, I wouldn't suggest that like what's happening to Olga isn't being monitored by the witches. And I think you're 100 percent right. There are multiple times throughout this movie, the camera work and the editing give you the idea that you are something watching something else, but you're not yourself. You're from the witch's perspective, and like they've got the the woman with the big glasses. Yes, yeah, yeah. I'm not 100 percent sure, but it does feel like she is like just a set of eyes for the witches and when she when she kills herself that's like she had a rare moment of control over herself she doesn't feel like a willing participant in the coven no she feels like she's very conflicted yeah like yeah like you said i think it is something to do with the vision like her Mm. ability to communicate visually to the rest of the witches or transmit something that's what the like once again it's very unclear and I'm fine uh, with mm. stuff like this. That's fine. I love being interpretive about that character specifically. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it because to me it makes there's it makes sense. But if I'm wrong, it doesn't change a lot. Mm-hmm. It's still cool. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I would say still yeah. Functionally, the witches definitely know what's going on in there. But I think there's a choice being made in that the witches are not like standing in a circle around her as it happens. Mm-hmm. We don't we don't see them in the room. Right. Or may, and maybe it's even intentional that like we don't see them in the room, but we feel their presence through the camera work. Right. Yeah. Because there yeah, is, I think, I think, yeah, like this scene, I love the way this sequence starts where you sort of, you have the sweeping crane shot pulling back as Blanc enters the, uh, the dance studio and she's, she's kissing all the dancers. Hello. It's very warm. Um, it's very, very empathetic, I think. And sort of well, they as they lead up to Olga and her outburst, I think it's very much you are in the room watching this stuff happen. And then as soon as Susie starts volunteering, uh, you take a personal point of view, right? And whether that's uh, uh, Blanc or Susie, or also there are some viewpoints that are like uh, from the other dancers sitting yeah. on the floor yeah. looking up at Blanc. But you have the camera will sort of whip pan over when Susie uh, volunteers. It also, I mean, I think in that in that conversation between Blanc and Susie, it takes Susie's point of view, giving her an odd degree of power in that sequence where she's saying, I can do it, I'm ready. Because Blanc is looking slightly off camera. Susie's looking right down the barrel. And that, that feels like it's more Susie's perspective mm-hmm. okay. than it is Blanc's. Well, that, ma- that I think, makes I think sense with the like what you said about the the positions of power at at play mm-hmm. here. It makes sense with what we know about Susie being Mother Suspirium in the end. Or, is she Mother Suspirium from the beginning, or does she channel Mother Suspirium and turn into her? I don't. It, if she is, I don't think she knows she is. Right? Yes. Because I think you know they they have all these other things where you can see that she's being drawn to Berlin as a child. She's obsessed with Berlin on the map. There's some reason she knows she wants to be there. Then then she finds out about the dance company and she gets to see them once on their tour. Three times. And she, yeah. And she obsesses over their their performances on the library tapes, and she finally makes it. And then she has this, 
incredible audition that she shouldn't have even gotten because she has no references and no training and she's just this natural talent and then you have this arc of her character over it where she becomes more confident and you know almost every dance subsequently she's wearing less clothing she becomes more more forward in her presentation and things like that and then eventually in the final sequence like she's she's wearing almost nothing when she becomes superiorum and she conjures up this shadow self right mm-hmm. this demon that that i think they suggest i actually I'm, I'm not sure there's another scene and we don't have to get too deep into it but i'm i'm unsure is there's a sequence where she's really obsessed with like dancing close to the floor and you see there are like taloned fingers like reaching up to the floor yeah i don't know if that's her shadow self or if that's mother marcos i thought it was marcos because the witches i thought mad it was marcos at of, too at yeah. miss tanner i think for yeah putting her in a closet underneath the dance floor right yeah i did think it was marcos but yeah it was just recently where i'm like oh was it the shadow self like it already wanted to come out but and when you say the shadow self you're talking about bagul from sinister right yes (laughs) yes precisely yeah uh who 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 makes a cameo in this movie um but all, all that's to say i like Dakota Johnson's performance at the beginning of this movie, particularly in in this scene, I think it's a great sort of show of innocence and shyness. Would you like to say something, Susie? Um, I don't know. Hello. (laughs) I feel like I'm not even here yet. I don't know. It gives you a nice counterpoint to what she eventually is. Right yeah, when she I like, starts I having moments like that. telepathic conversations with Blanc, and when she comes into her own, and then the the last scene where she's got the gloves on and she's talking to Klemperer, I think I think it's a, I think it's a great character arc, and I think this scene is a nice sort of starting point for that. Yeah, like you said, she starts off very innocent, and to me, it's just it's just unclear as to what point, if at any point before the very end, Mother Suspirium has kind of taken over her. So mm-hmm. if this is all just pure Susie from the beginning, then it's really like well, either way, it's just really cool watching this like seemingly shy young woman transform into the witch who takes over the coven. Uh, mm-hmm. And that trajectory is remains the most interesting part of the film to me. Yeah. And, and I did I did want to touch on. So I read some stuff by the, the person who wrote the script, David uh, Kaganich. Kaganich? I was going to say Kaganich, but... Kaganich? Uh, David K. <laughs> uh, basically, he, he had some ideas on sort of the trope of the final girl. Um, so for those unfamiliar, check the show notes, but essentially, you know, the last girl in a horror movie who usually survives, but not always, but she's the last one. She's the final girl. And he speaks sort of about her being a product of her environment. It's always just she is a subject of the horror and the violence and the terror and it's sort of just you you see yourself in her or you at least use the way that she's reacting to note how you would be reacting and things like that Mm -hmm. right purely as like a function and he wanted to do a different thing with the final girl on this where it's not a matter of her surviving she doesn't overcome an evil power she takes in the power and recontextualizes it she uses it a different way so it's kind of a it's different, I mean, especially from, from the original movie, but, like, a lot of horror tropes where it is just she gets out by the skin of her teeth. Um, this is something else entirely. But, yeah, I mean, that that's sort of, like, you know, I, I like the scene to sort of touch on where Dakota Johnson's character begins. Um, 
I mean, I mean, uh, beyond that, I think I also we should, like the, I think we should get into some of the magic that's happening here. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I love the, the couple times where they sort of will edit together a curse and it's just jump cuts to maniacal laughing. I think it's, it's, it's unsettling every time. And like, so when Olga's leaving and the, the, the two older witches like stop her on the staircase and you get that first person perspective where they're like, like fish are islands. you okay? <laughs> And then it gets kind of dreamy and then it hard cuts back to laughing. And Olga's, like, the way that they curse her is, like, her eyes get, like, goopy. There's, like, she has, like, thick tears. So I don't know if that's, like, you know, mother of tears thing or something. That's, like, one of their key curses or one of their one of the things. But I would say to whatever degree this is intentional, uh, I don't know, Tay, if you've ever uh, struggled with sleep paralysis. But I've had it before where it's just, put very simply – your body will do something while you're asleep to make sure you're not moving, right? It's a safety thing so that, like, you're not running outright in your dream or you don't punch the wall or fall out of bed. Sleep paralysis is when your mind wakes up, but your body is still doing that stuff, so you can't move your body, but your mind is awake. I used to struggle with it a little bit more. I, I realized I just have to sleep differently, and I don't, I don't wake up partially. But one of the more terrifying aspects of it is when I can't even open my eyelids but like I'm looking like my eyes are my eyes are 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 functioning but my eyelids feel like they weigh like a thousand pounds because I can't get them open and that that sort of is what this sequence feels like to me where she's trying to blink this stuff out of her eyes and she can't see properly so I've always found it to be a very visceral uh, viewing experience because it really reminds me of something that is truly kind of horrifying in real life I think of my allergies to cats there you go. Yeah. <laughs> also horrifying. Yeah. yeah. Just like, yeah. you're like, how are there more tears coming out of my eyes? How yeah. is it, where's this water coming from? Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's irritating to watch, not in the sense like I'm annoyed by it, but like you can feel her physical irritation mm-hmm. to it. And it, and, and everyone can kind of, picture themselves having this kind of moment even though it's not something that's ever happened to any of us to this degree we can all kind of put ourselves in her shoes which is why i think so much of the movie and the horror of this movie actually work is because it's relatable kind of disfigurements Mm and and body horror yeah Uh, yeah no i think i think it's connected to reality yeah i think there's a lot of texture to it and a lot of uh, tactility especially like when her body starts getting folded and stuff like that, there's some, I think there's some good prosthetics at play where her, her rib cage sort of bulges out her, her jaw dislocates. And then later on, like when her limbs start wrapping around themselves. So Mark Coulier, he made basically these little fake limbs and then her actual limb would be in like a green screen sock so that they could edit it out. And there's a lot of that in this movie. There's a lot of CGI to just remove things. And I, right? I would so, have thought that they just hired a contortionist, to be honest. You would think so. But yeah, no, they, I guess so they, they, they would do those wraparounds. And then I think it's also a wonderful performance by Elena Fukina because 
she has to dance as if it's happening to her, not as if she's doing it. I think there's there's it, it's a it's a little bit of a subtle thing going on there, and it's it it ends up there again with the I mentioned the sound mixing before. I think it creates a very palpable experience. Like you can feel her hitting the floor and her bones breaking, and there's a lot like a lot of expression in her face, and it is it is like a five minute sequence of listening to a woman scream. It's and her body getting like pulled apart. Yeah, it's incredibly unsettling. Yeah, um, it it's the standout instance of the movie in terms of what people think mm-hmm. about first when they think back to this version. It's that. Yeah. It's the body contortion. No, yeah, and and I would say like this is the high counterpoint to one of my main criticisms of the movie is it has such good effects throughout. And if you watch, there's unfortunately because Amazon Prime, there are no special features on the DV, on the Blu-ray. And there's like two featurettes on YouTube, but they do a lot of work with like blood, like fake blood pumps for like when, when the woman like cuts her throat and things like that. And then in that final sequence, it's a lot of not good looking CGI blood. Oh, it's awful. Are we, are we going to get into that final scene? I just wanted to mention, this is a great, I think the physical effects in this are very effective. Yep. And, and they work really well. And it's unfortunate that they, for whatever reason, they had to go with something else in the final scene. Yeah, it seemed very counterintuitive in many ways. But I, like, mm-hmm. I don't want to have to dive into the whole last scene. Um, yeah, yeah. I did want to say what I liked about this scene, well, in addition to what we've already talked about, is the use of subtle visual cues to imply magic. Uh, I like the little lights that appear in Susie's hands and feet when uh, mm-hmm. Madame Blanc touches them. I like later in the film when you see just like it's really, honestly, I want to say it's simple, but who knows, light effects where it's mm-hmm. almost like Aurora Borealis style kind of like a glimmer glimmers around her when yeah. she's dreaming and mm-hmm. when it, she's like thinking. Uh, I really like the subtlety of all that kind of stuff because to me, I, I, I need that kind of cue when I'm watching something that's supposed to be so intangible yeah i i like that uh if it's done in a subtle way i don't like it being ham-fisted but uh the way that they did it in suspiria is pretty awesome uh and my favorite shot of this whole scene is nothing to do with the rehearsal room or the body contortion or the dance hall it's when olga is walking down that dark hallway towards the mirrored room and you can just Mm -hmm. tell that she's possessed it's the way she's walking and she's not walking on her own will and it's a credit to the actor and the cinematographer for just holding the shot mm-hmm. and, and letting like she her walks walk. into like a trunk and 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 also like the again the sound design you've got them like in her mind <laughs> saying like olga come uh, yes uh, come and z come and z come here come here yeah right and it's the same. I love how they mix like that, that telepathy or uh, telepathy sort of whatever. Because like they have other scenes where the entire sort of coven of witches are having their vote while they're making breakfast. It's a big one. Yeah. It's another great sequence. And just the way that they that they create that audio effect for like this is in someone's head, right? Like it's not because there's such a distinct tactile audio or sonic quality to the things that are in the dance hall right like the sound like footsteps make or even like when like there's like Susie like throws her socks at one point and they have such weight when they hit the floor um they're sweaty i think i think you're right like that yeah <laughs> that uh that sequence of olga being walked 
down that hallway and then the door just sort of opens itself and then it shuts on her again the uh, cut there is weird i will say it's chilling it's it's a weird yeah. uh jump cut to like the door already kind of be, it feels like a lack of uh, like a miscontinuity thing but mm-hmm. i'm not gonna rip on that it's it's simple and barely noticeable yeah but i i really like the shot leading up to that entrance into the room uh and for the most part i think this scene gets the tone like spot on for what it needed to be you know like half an hour into the movie and we've seen a very dreamlike space so far that's kind of hard to get wrap our heads around and then the movie tells us exactly what the stakes are which is something i've talked about before on other episodes give us the stakes early give us the most horrifying imagery early and then the audience can just have that fear of that happening to other characters that we grow to care more about throughout the movie uh let it happen to characters we don't care about as much, the worst stuff, mm-hmm. and then as the movie progresses, we just fear the worst for our main characters. And uh, to kind of wrap up our scene, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, without this kind of extremity, without the extreme torture depicted in this scene, I think the movie does play so much more like a thriller or a more dreamlike kind of fantasy than a horror. And it's the fact that we get this sense or this instance of graphic violence so early in the film that we feel so and un- we feel the sense of unease throughout the rest of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Like this is, this is one of our sort of the things that we always come back to on this podcast are these early scene setting or stage setting scenes where, yeah, they give you the stakes, they give you the feel they, they let you know what to look for, and they, they teach you how to watch the movie. And I think how to watch this movie is being afraid you're going to have to watch something like that happen again. And nothing quite does. Um, but yeah, I think, it, I think it sets you up for, I mean, the remaining two hours of this movie to be on edge. Yeah. And, and not, not sure what's going to happen at any moment. Um, and there, there it's, are, a, it's a great long sequence. Because yeah. there are moments where uh, there's actually two moments I wanted to point out where the music cuts out completely and they're, they're seemingly mm-hmm. tense moments. Uh, one of them is when Sarah and Susie are breaking into the records room and it, there's just mm-hmm. like, it's, I was so on edge during that scene and I know yeah. nothing's going to happen. No one, they don't get caught. There's mm-hmm. no music though, which is awesome. And it's because of this first scene that that scene, cause it's, I think it's like only 10 minutes, 15 minutes later, feels so scary yeah. um and then there's a scene where sarah kind of follows that path into the dark like that dark area behind the rehearsal room mm. for the first time yeah. there's also no music there either and in my head there's i was like there's no way she's out of, getting out of here alive yeah so it all yeah, for me attributed to this first scene for me the one that that like always makes me so tense and that's because of this scene and how it works is later when Susie is learning to jump and they focus so much on her feet hitting the floor. Yeah. And I remember the first time I was watching, I'm like, I don't want to see your ankle break. I don't want to see like an exposed bone. You're just like, because it's over and over and yeah. over. And you're like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And like, she makes it out okay. And so does like the the, the other dancer who sort of demonstrates the jumps. But I'm so worried every time because you're like, we're a second away from seeing a real gruesome ankle turn or like you know when you see someone's knee collapse well, in a ufc what, fight, what happens to see right? what happens to sarah later yeah in the... what happens to sarah to mia goth yeah yeah like but yeah no for i mean for all those reasons this this scene is is uh is fantastic and uh and a, and a great sort of like signpost for the rest of the movie but um with that we'll jump to uh some shout outs mine 
uh, is right from the scene. It's uh, Angela Winkler who plays Miss Tanner. Yeah. Who um, she does the counting when they turn off the music, and she's got that great like when when Olga calls them witches and she starts cackling. I I love this actor's uh, posture. I love she's got a real intense face. Yeah. And she took the whole. She she really lent herself to every part of this, including where they're like. Blanc is like, oh, uh, I need you to keep time. One and two and three and one and two and three and eins und zwei und drei und eins und zwei und drei und eins und zwei und drei und eins und zwei und. And it's so intense, and she's so committed to it. I think I think it's a wonderful performance, and uh, you know, shout out to Angela. Yeah, I had to look up her filmography, and unfortunately, it's almost all like, well, not unfortunately, but it's almost all German film. Uh, yeah, the only other thing I've seen her in was a Netflix show called Dark, which was like a German production. Was that, oh, um, is that like an anthology series? Uh, no, it's like uh, it's hard to explain. It's like Lost. It's ext- it's extremely confusing because okay. they do multiple generations of German actors, and you have to remember all all these different German I heard, people. I heard it's that not was easy. good or something. Like, it was recommended it is, to me. Yeah. I remember. Uh, my shout out is also one of like the coven leaders, uh, who's played by Ingrid Caven and she plays Miss Vendegast. And Mm -hmm. specifically, I wanted to shout out the part where they, like I mentioned already earlier, they lead Klemperer back to the dance hall with an, a, an image of his wife kind of guiding him there, his dead wife. Mm -hmm. And when he, they get there, she disappears. And this moment this is like the epitome of horror to me is this kind of stuff is when jump scare is it's when reality shifts on the person and they're unable to tell until it's too late. So I like Mm -hmm. when I like in movies when time is misconstrued by the character that we're following and we don't even notice until it's too late that those kinds of things get me. So when this happens to Clamperer and you kind of, there's like that snap and you realize where he is. It's well, immediately. It's a, it's a slow. It's so good because yeah. it's kind of a slow fade where like his wife disappears off screen. He's like, "What?" And then he looks up and he's like, "Oh, I'm at the dance academy." And then they do they do like that snap cut, just like a, f- a couple seconds where the witches appear and they're like screaming yes. and laughing. Yeah, so it's that scream yeah. because another one of the scariest moments in horror to me ever was the scream in Psycho when she turns yeah. around and sees Norman in the like standing in the doorway. Mm. So something about like this primal screech and slash like you said yeah. ma- maniacal laughter it just gets me and uh, if that all is in the performance of Miss Vendegast once again played by Ingrid Cavan I think that that's a huge tribute to her because it's a horrifying sound that she's making and yeah. it makes me truly fear for uh, Klemperer, Dr. Klemperer. Yeah, no, it's a it's a great moment. That's a great call. I'm, I'm glad we were able to shout out some of the other members of the coven because like, they're all great at what they do. They it's, just don't. Yeah. They can't all get as much screen time as Tilda, um, understandably. Um but yeah, with that, that's uh, that's one of my favorites. Uh, I hope uh, if you sat down and uh, and gave yourself the evening to watch it, I hope you enjoyed it, or maybe left you with something, or you know, at least scared you, right? Some <laughs> of those some of those laughs, some of those screams, some of those bone breaks. Um, 
Next week, we're going back to Craven with A Nightmare on Elm Street. That's what uh, that's what you all voted for. Uh, I can't say we're terribly surprised, but uh, it's a solid movie. It's, I'm very excited to talk about some of the effects in this movie because it, it feels like putting a budget to really good use. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, with that, we'll head into some recommendations. I'm going to recommend... You know, I'm going to say uh, I had a couple different options because we talked about horror remakes and things like that. Uh, I'm going to go with The Invisible Man um, just from a couple years ago. I think it's a solid horror remake. Obviously, um, as we talked about, it's not one of the ones that's leaning into nostalgia, but it recontextualizes it for a current sort of social and political climate in terms of um, uh, uh, patriarchy and, and uh, relationship uh, abuse and control things like that i think you get a great performance from elizabeth moss uh i think it's a really solid modern horror uh remake right on i haven't seen that one but i like the original a lot well i'd recommend it (laughs) and what are you gonna recommend there tay i feel like what did you recommend oh you you recommended um new nightmare last i did right yeah uh, and I did put this in our Sunday wrap-up because I did watch this recently. That's what I wasn't... Yeah, yeah. That's what I was unsure about. <laughs> but And I usually don't recommend something I've already put in the Sunday wrap-up, but I have to give a shout-out because there's the connection of Mia Goth uh, being an actor in both mm-hmm. this movie and then also jumping into the movie called X, which is a 2022 movie, brand new for the mm-hmm. fine folk out there. I recommend checking this one out because not only is there a connection between Mia Goth uh, being an actor in both films, uh, but there's also an example of an actor playing multiple characters within the same film using extensive prosthetics to do so. And I will not say any more than that, but if you like this idea Mm -hmm. of Tilda Swinton kind of guising herself as these three characters in Suspiria, I would highly recommend checking out X. Uh, Mia Goth's performance alone is worth the price of admission Um, and it's worth noting that there's a prequel and a sequel coming out to this movie within the next year Mm -hmm. so there's plenty of content if you do like X to keep moving on with this character and story so uh, I have not seen Pearl or the upcoming Maxine yet because that one's not out but I fully Mm -hmm. intend to and I'm excited to do so. Yeah, no, X was fantastic, a, a great sort of uh, modern addition, which is always just, I don't I don't want to be negative, but it, every time a modern horror movie, I enjoy it, I'm like, what a nice surprise, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, I just, I've been I've been trained by, by some bad installments, I think. So yeah, I really liked X. I'm hoping we can catch Pearl in theaters this month. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so that's our recommendations. Uh, as always, check our show notes to see where you can follow us on uh, Instagram, or you can follow me on Letterboxd and see how many horror movies I'm putting away this month. Um, if you listen to us on iTunes, we'd love if you give us a review there. It really helps us, and you can always shoot us an email at singleservingcinema at gmail.com. Uh, but uh, if nothing else, make sure you uh, watch Nightmare on Elm Street uh, before next week, and then after that, we're doing Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Hell yeah. All right, bye, everyone. We'll see you next time. <laughs>